Wouldn't it be great if Christians could talk about the Bible and various issues without fighting or arguing or name-calling? Imagine if we could just sit down, have a cup of coffee, discuss, and even if we disagree, treat each other with respect. That's what this podcast is all about, kind, loving, Christian conversations. It's not a sermon or a Bible class. It's just followers of Jesus talking about life and faith. I hope this show encourages you to have conversations like this with people in your life. I'm Wes McAdams, and I want to welcome you to the Crosstalk Podcast. I feel incredibly blessed to count Dan Chambers as one of my good friends. He's an outstanding preacher, author, and follower of Jesus. We recently had a phone conversation and discussed the role of women in the church and how various passages of scripture are interpreted by people on both sides of the arguments. If you're interested or concerned about this issue, I think you will find this conversation helpful. So let's talk about some of the things that that the average person might hear from the pulpit okay. or from um, a Bible class or from an eldership. You know, I, I hear a lot of congregations where the elders will get up and they'll say something like, you know, our elders are, have been studying this issue and we're, yep. we're, we're examining things. And, and that's always, I mean, on the surface, that's a good thing for us to, mm-hmm. to question. Are we doing what's right? Are we doing what's good? Have we been going along with culture in the past? And we need to make a shift to be more biblical. And we always need to be examining what we're doing. But so often when a congregation makes that announcement, I kind of already know the direction they're going to go, yep. and maybe that's just yeah. c- cynical of me. But but it seems like they they tend to to go in this direction. And so maybe what are some of the things that people might hear and be aware of, and some of the arguments that are popular uh, to convince congregations and individuals that this is the direction we need to go? Yeah, that that's a great question, and and. Uh uh, wow, there, there's so many things that, that you might hear. It, it really depends on the text, you know. Every text has been, you know, looked at so carefully from every conceivable angle to try to kind of limit the scope of their historic application. And what I mean by that, of course, is that, you know, historically uh, in the Christian community, you know, for basically 20 centuries, there's been an understanding that, uh uh, you know, God created men, men, and he created women, women, and uh, they're equal in nature, they're equal in their standing before God relationally as husband and wife, they, they're equal, they mutually possess each other, but but clearly God had some uh, gender-based restrictions uh, uh, for kingdom living, and, and you know, historically, the, the, just the most straightforward re- reading of those texts, like 1 Timothy 2.12, or First Corinthians 14, beginning about the end of verse 33, uh, they they seem to be so straightforward and so clear, and uh, and you know right about 1960, in that kind of uh, time period, people started taking a uh, you know fresh look and and you know kind of put that in air quotes uh, because times really did start changing, and so they started. Dealing with these texts, how are we going to deal with these texts? And so, you know, all of these, te- both of these texts and, and others have just been meticulously picked apart. And, you know, that's what this book that we reference, Women in the Church, is all about, dealing with one of those texts uh, that, that, you know, more and more want to limit the scope of its application because it just doesn't feel right to our culture. And, and I think that's why so many people are uh, willing to embrace uh, 
you know, if an eldership gets up and say, hey, look, we've taken a new, fresh look at this. And our conclusion is, and so many people are, are really open for it, open to it for, I think, a, a couple of reasons. But one is just culturally where we live and, and the time and the place that you and I live, that, you know, the the historic cr- position of Christianity that uh, that God calls men to spiritually lead his, his community of faith, uh, that just seems to be so unloving, and it seems to be so discriminatory. And so it just doesn't feel right. And so I think people are really open to when uh, a view comes along and uh, and it presents something that seems to be, you know, fit the, uh, you know, the definition of love and, and non-discrimination. So they're real open to these new looks at Scripture. And so as people... Uh, pick these things apart to try to make it really kind of fit the sensitivities of our time. One of, you know, there, there's a lot of different things. One of them uh, is, uh, wow, Wes, there's just so many places to go with this. One of the things that people will hear a lot is that uh, when when Paul is uh, saying what he does in 1 Timothy 2.12, that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, that... Uh, you know, a lot of things that we're going to hear now is that well, that was limited to the audience to what to, to uh, that Paul originally wrote that letter to. He's he's writing to uh, Timothy dealing with problems at Ephesus, and if we really understand Ephesus historically, it was unique in the Roman world, and it was kind of a feminine culture. Uh, it it had primarily its primary goddess was feminine, and so. There was this kind of sex reversal that took place in, in Ephesian culture, and so uh, you know men were looked down on, and uh, you know women dominated the culture. Uh, there was this anti-male hostility, and and females were exalted exalted in culture, and they were socially superior over men. and And so when people were converted to Christ, that showed up in the church. People would say. And, uh, and and so when Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, he's just dealing with those kind of attitudes that were prevalent in Ephesus. And so you've got to understand, they say, you've got to understand who Paul was talking to and the situation on the ground when he wrote that letter. And when we understand that, we go, oh, okay, so that doesn't apply to us. Uh, that is a huge thing that people here today, uh, one of the central arguments to try to uh, go in a different direction than the historic view of uh, men's and women's roles in and, the church. And that's an argument that I hear I hear from from very well-respected scholars. I, I Somebody posted a video of N.T. Wright, and, you know, I mean, he's he's a well-respected scholar yeah. across across lots of different boundaries, and um, and I, I respect his scholarship, and and that was a position that he was taking, and and I think that when when the average Christian hears that argument, yep. I mean, there, there's nothing they can say to that. They they can't really say, well, yep. no, it wasn't. That's not the way it was in Ephesus, because how how do they know? How do they have any idea? And so if somebody sets something up and say, well, it, you cannot understand this passage without understanding the historical context, I I think that that's 
that's a lot of times a very dangerous position to take on any passage, but that's a whole other issue. Yeah. But but there's so there's so little that the average Christian can say in response yeah. to that. And 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 so this book was incredibly insightful yeah. to me uh, personally, but also to give tools to the average Christian to help them to see what life was really like in Ephesus. Yeah, that is exactly right. And you know, really, it, we bear such a burden as teachers and and preachers in the church, and you know, well, that, you know, God put teachers in the church for for this very reason. Uh, you know that 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 has to drive us to the study, and uh, because you're right, just the average person, uh, you know, they they hear the arguments and they sound so right, and you know, authorities are quoted, and uh, it it can sound so persuasive and. And they don't really know where to go. They don't know that there's another side to that story. And so, uh, boy, it just on matters like this, you know, those of us who you know teach and preach on a regular basis, we just it just you know that that should really uh, you know drive us to to dig deep. And 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 when you do, you start seeing that whoa 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 whoa, there is another side. And and to help people see that and. Uh, one of the things that I do here at, at Concord Road is, you know, about every four years we'll do a uh, an entire series on, okay, what distinguishes us from other church groups? What these practices that we've embraced, and uh, you know, our beliefs, our practices that kind of distinguish us and and separate us from other church groups. And and one of them, of course, is uh, uh, the view of male male spiritual headship. Uh, it, it used to be a view that was pretty consistent across the American church landscape, uh, but, you know, it's increasingly, uh, you know, becoming uh, more rare. And so uh, I I really kind of walk them through this stuff, and, um, you know, I will take a lot of stuff from Stephen Ball. He's the guy who wrote the chapter, by the way, in the book Women in the Church, uh, A Foreign World uh, is the name of his chapter, Ephesus in the First Century. And I'll walk them through it. it. It sounds so academic and, you know, and it just sounds, you know, so collegiate and, and boring. And, uh, you know, it just doesn't fit the, uh, you know, the, the, the popular, you know, narrative approach to preaching. And, but, but listen, we've got to do this. Yeah. And, and I've found that people respond very, very well to it, by the way. I, I think, you know, people are hungry for content. I've, I've really discovered that. And, uh, and you can present it in, in interesting ways. You know, you can, most of them aren't going to read the book. It's just, right, right. even though it's not written from an, a real, 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 for academicians, it, it, it really, even though it's not, it really is. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and most people aren't going to get for the first three pages and they're going, are you kidding me? There's no way. And right. so, you know, we kind of have to boil that down. And when you do boil it down and, and kind of say, Hey, let me tell you about, hey, I know what you hear and what you read on websites and some churches, I can tell you a church right here locally that has posted this big article that, uh, you know, someone that they really appreciate has written about, as they uh, change their views on uh, male spiritual headship and, and men's and women's roles in the church, uh, they have these links that you can click on, and, and, and so people can read it. And so it's out there. And, 
and and so uh you know i take that stuff and i and i use it i say listen we need to look at it and i don't call people out right. from the pulpit but i say now let me show you the other side of this and i'll say let me tell you about this this guy named Stephen ball and i'll have of course powerpoints that kind of give the bullet points of it and I say, this guy, when you hear, when you talk about experts, you're going to run into a lot of people who tell you about what the experts say on Ephesus. Well, let me tell you what the expert on Ephesus say. And I kind of set it up and, and show them why he is the expert on Ephesus. You know, his, his PhD dissertation was Paul in Ephesus. Uh, and, uh, and, and as he wrote his PhD, you know, uh, studied every ancient source available, literary sources, inscriptions, archaeological, coins, everything. And, uh, I mean, meticulous. There was not one stone in ancient Ephesus that he left uncovered. And, uh, you know, so, and of course, because of that expertise, he, he wrote the Ephesians commentary in the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary series. He wrote the study notes for Ephesians in the ESV study Bible. And so I kind of I explained to them, look, okay, now this guy, he is the guy on Ephesus. So, uh, and, and, and so it's not just, hey, scholars say, but I want to help them to say, see that there are scholars and then there are scholars. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, so I, I, I put out his credentials and, uh, and then say, here's what we need to know and here and, and show them that, uh, you know, there's just been a lot of, uh, you know, fanciful reconstructions of Ephesus that really don't have a basis in fact, and that, uh, you know, Ephesus really wasn't uh, different from other, you know, Greco-Roman cities. They were, they were just like every other, uh, you know, ancient uh, city in Roman times. They were, they weren't unique politically, socially. You know, leadership was in the hands. Uh, of exclusively male institutions, uh, religious institutions were governed. Uh, you know, it was decidedly male, and and so I help them to see they need to see. Like I said, I know it sounds so academic, but man, that's what our people are, you know, being taught, and uh, and so we have to deal with it, whether yeah. it sounds you know cold and boring and academic or not. And 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 I think most people, you know, it can be presented in a in a uh, in an interesting way and uh, and really in an enlightening way to people and, it's, and it really strengthens their convictions. Uh, you know when they hear one side of the story and think, "Wow!" You know, and to use the name you threw out, N.T. Wright. Wow! And of course, most people on the pew don't know who N.T. Wright is, right. but uh, uh, they go, "Wow, that's pretty overwhelming." And you know, they're you know they can maybe get a little shaky in their faith or even preachers. And, uh, and, and then when you kind of help walk them through some other things that they're just like, wow, oh, okay. And they see the other side of the story and the strength, you know, their, their, their commitments just become stronger. Uh, so I yeah. think we've got to teach it. Yeah, we do. I, to be able to answer those that say that, but also because, I mean, we would agree that culture and history is important. And so the cu- cultural oh, and yeah. historical context is incredibly important. Uh, and so yeah. helping them to understand what, what that really was is important. But what I think is is fascinating is that so many people are being convinced that Paul says what he says because of what's going on specifically in Ephesus. 
And you would think that if that's what he was doing, if he was telling Timothy, okay, hey, as the young preacher here in Ephesus, you've got these disruptive women who are teaching that women should be in charge of men and that women are better than men and men need to be subjugated. Because of that situation, you need to teach them that that they don't have authority or you know can't teach men or whatever. And so you need to teach that in your specific context. You would think that he would give that because reason in the text. But even if he didn't, yeah. <laughs> you, you would expect it to be absent. The, any reason why he was saying that, because Timothy would just understand, well, because of my context, that Paul is saying what he's saying. But but what Paul does do is he tells him why. He tells him, here's, what, here's the instruction, but the reason why is rooted in creation. And so he, yeah. he, he ties it to creation. And that's what, to me, so many people overlook. And in fact... One of their arguments, one of the typical arguments that I hear is that in the beginning, God created male and female without any sort of distinct roles, and then the 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 roles happened as a result of the fall. And so they would say, well, in the beginning, you know, men and women had, there was no distinction between their roles, and then there was a fall, and that's when man became the leader or the head, and that in Jesus, he's putting it back to the way things were pre-fall. So he's he's erasing that curse of men being over women. And so they would say, well, see, that's the way it should be in the church. Well, there's so many problems with that argument. Yeah. And, and to me, one of the, the greatest problems with that argument is that's not at all what Paul says. What Paul says is the reason why men should be in the leadership teaching role isn't because they're better, isn't because they're you know smarter, or because women are gullible or whatever. It's because of creation and that the fact that man was created first and then woman is the reason why Paul has... And he, he says, this is the reason why. He says the because... Yeah. And the because isn't the cultural and historical context of Ephesus. It's because of something that happened thousands of years prior to that. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, and, and, that's, the, and that's why, you know, for 2,000 years, basically, there's been a general consensus among Bible-believing people about male spiritual headship because they just, it's just so—Paul um, Paul does state his reason, and you're exactly right. Uh, you know, a lot of times people are trying to find the reason and for why Paul tells Timothy what he does, this prohibition about women teaching and having authority. And, and, and like you basically said, what they're overlooking is the fact that Paul did state his That's reason. Exactly they're right. creating reasons, yeah. and, and Paul states his reason. And, and it, is, uh, you know, it is the order of creation. You know, one of the things I always like to do, regardless of... Uh, you know, whatever the topic is, the the Bible topic is, is just uh, to to typically, you know, accept the 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 plainest, most simplest, most straightforward meaning of the text, and uh, and First Timothy two twelve is pretty simple and straightforward, and that's why it hasn't historically given any trouble. And uh, so Paul gives his prohibition, and he gives the reason, and like you said, it, it's rooted in creation order. Uh, you know, it, it's as though some people were thinking. That you know, in the back in the very beginning, when God created, he he just kind of messed up, and uh, he created men, and then he he kind of said, "Wow, huh? That didn't really work out like I, I thought it would." Boy, something just kind of is missing here, and then he decided to create a woman, and 
first of all, that completely misunderstands God's nature and, uh, you know, his eternal nature and his omniscience. And uh, no, what we learn from the New Testament in passages like 1 Timothy 2.12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul uses creation order there as well to establish male headship, is that uh, we learn why God did what he did. He didn't just go, you know, oh, I'll create human beings and he'll create this man. And, oh, man, that didn't work out quite. Well, boy, what's missing? No, he did it that way on purpose. And, uh, and he informs us there in the New Testament of what the purpose was. He did that intentionally, men first and then women. And, uh, and we learn from the New Testament really uh, most clearly what his intent was, and that was – uh, to establish uh, male headship. And I like what you said, and I think this is so huge that every time I talk on, you know, and we discuss men's and women's roles, I think it's so important before you dive right into it because of just the time in which we live that we establish the fact of, uh, you know, that male headship isn't about male superiority. It's mm-hmm. not about men being more talented, men being more spiritually strong uh, and, uh, and resilient more valuable. It's not about any of those things. It, the order of creation doesn't speak of the value of the person at all. It just simply speaks of uh, of roles. And, uh, and, and try to help people understand what male headship means, because just the expression male headship, female submission, just is just, I mean, it's one of those just awful, awful sounding yeah, things and, to, to contemporary uh, ears. And I, and I think it's not only, you know, problematic because of you know, just generally how we feel about it because of the time in which we live, but also because, I mean, frankly, it has been abused. I mean, those, the, that yep. concept, yep. that idea, um, even those passages themselves have been abused by churches and by individuals and, yep. and still are. There are still husbands who, I mean, they don't care what Ephesians 5 says for them yep, to do right. as husbands in loving and cherishing and nourishing their wives and treating them, laying down their life for their wife as Jesus yeah. does for the church. They don't care about that. All they see is, hey, wife, you're supposed to submit to me. And that is that is such an abuse of, of Christianity, of these passages of Scripture, and it's such a misunderstanding. And so we do we do have to, to couch it in those terms, and we have to preface it, and 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 I think that that maybe sometimes I don't know how you'd feel about this, Dan, but, you know, I, I think that sometimes we've we've probably gone too far in what we've prohibited and, and kept women from doing in the church uh, because we don't want to cross a line or we don't be, want to be going in the wrong direction. And I think that there's some resentment from from that yeah. um, and, and maybe even rightfully so. And so I think we do yeah. have to be honest about what the text does say, Amen. what it doesn't say, that we don't go beyond what's written and that we that we understand why this is is here. What and and even and I think an important thing to do in First Timothy two is understand what was going on in Ephesus, not what not what we speculate was going on in Ephesus, but what the text actually talks about in the false teachers that were deceiving people and leading people astray, and how Paul wanted to protect people from that. And the way that people were going to be protected by that from that is for men to stand up, do their job, teach and lead, and for women to do what they were called to do. And and in the in the text, and it's not again, that's not a popular thing to say, but in the text, he he's saying that they should be in chapter two and in chapter five, busy at home and they should be taking care of their responsibilities. And he mentions childbirth, you know, childbearing as, as part of that. Um, but, but 
his overarching concern is that Satan doesn't lead people astray through these false teachers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I totally agree with everything that you said, uh, you know, about uh, sometimes the application that's, you know, historically been applied in the church it's probably went too far, and, uh, and we've got to be, you know, real honest, and, uh, you know, as we intensely exegete the text and, and make application, uh, you know, that we draw, draw lines where they need to be drawn and, uh, and, and, and be careful, uh, you know, that we don't say more than it says. Um, uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. And, you, and man, I'm telling you, you're absolutely right about how this, uh, the whole men's and women's thing has been abused and there's nothing more nauseating and disgusting than that reality. And, uh, you know, I always, that's another thing that I always emphasize, because I don't want anybody to, to you know, hear me and, and take this notion that male headship, uh, you know, smacks of tyranny and dominance and, and that it means women are voiceless and, uh, you know, second class. And one of the things I always do, one of my favorite texts to emphasize that is um, is actually First Peter chapter three, where you know the very beginning of it, you, you find the principle of male headship, female submission. Again, where Peter says in the same way, you wives, you know, be submissive to your husbands. But then I love getting down to verse seven, and I love hitting that hard, uh, where he tells husbands, you know, you, you live with your wives in an understanding way as someone weaker. And and by the way, I always pause there and uh, say, you know, that's another text that has been abused because people have applied that, you know, in bizarre ways like emotionally weak yeah. and spiritually weak and intellectually weak, and it means none of those things. It just means physically weaker. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, the way God designed men and women, we're stronger, generally. You know, every time I say that, I know someone's always waiting for me at the door to tell me about a woman they know who can... <laughs> kick me up and down the street right. and you know and, and i know there's exceptions but generally you know uh, uh women are weaker and, and and so he says you show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life and meaning hey listen she's vulnerable and if you don't treat her with the dignity and the respect and cherish her the way god has called you to cherish her like jesus cherishes the church if you don't do that the last line there in verse 7 is so powerful so that your prayers won't be hindered. Mm. I emphasize, if you are not treating your wife, you know, if you're treating her like a tyrant and, you know, a voiceless, you know, slave, and uh, then God is not interested in what you have to offer him. He's not interested. You can come and you can sit on the pew all day long and you can drop money in the collection plate and you can close your eyes, you know, while you're eating the Lord's Supper and meditate on the cross but none of that, God is not interested in any of that if you're not the being the husband that God has called you to be. And yeah. so, yeah, I think it's important that we, because you're right. And, and, you know, people are so eager to wave that flag of the abuses that have happened in the past and where people, you know, beat women into submission with the Bible. And we can't, you know, we can't be soft on that and, and excuse that because there is no excuse for it. Right. It, it has been abused. Uh, but uh, but but those abuses, uh, you know, doesn't change, you know, the truth 
of uh, you know of 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 God's intent for uh, for men and women in the life of of a spiritual community or in the home. Yeah. You know, another passage, and you brought up First Peter, and 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 I think that there's a, a tie in there too with Galatians three, and you know, Paul says that there's neither male nor female, there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female, or slave or free, that we're all one in Christ, and and it's amazing to me how that text is often used as a proof text to say, you see, yeah. there there the gender distinctions are eliminated, but yeah, but right. if if that meant what what they would have us to believe that it means, then Paul would be, and Peter would be as well, because Galatians was probably written long before, you know, some of these other letters that Paul wrote, then Paul would be violating that very principle every time he says in 1 Corinthians 14 or in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, for, for women to have this role and for men to have this role, he's right. violating the principle that he laid down if that yeah. was the case. Uh, but you know, speak to that if you if you want to, I guess. But um, yeah. it, it's amazing how how little regard is paid for the context of Galatians three when people use it in that way. Yeah, you are so right. You know, people. You know, I mean, just frankly, and, and we're all susceptible to this. You know, if we want we want something so bad, we're looking for a peg to hang. Yeah, that's know, a good way to put it. On. And, and Galatians three, there in, in verse twenty-eight, is one of those pegs that those who are desperately finding, you know, searching for support for the egalitarian view. And, and when I say egalitarian, by the way, uh, you know that I mean the, the view that there's no gender-based restrictions right. on roles in the church. But when when people are you know searching for support for that, they're look, you know, this is one of the places they go. And, and you are so right. One of the things that we have to emphasize to people uh, and, and our people when we're teaching and preaching constantly is that, you know, we not only look at everything in its immediate context, but we look at everything also in the fuller context of Scripture. And, you know, if, if Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 was all that we had, you know, in terms of a reference to try to get some kind of uh, sense of uh, of what God, you know, has called men to be and do, and what He's called women to be and do. If that's all we had, then then you know I can understand you know some of the conclusions that are drawn. Well, there must be you know a, a, a full equality in in roles and everything. But it's not, as you said. Uh, you know, there's so many other places in Scripture that clearly show that Galatians three twenty eight has nothing to do with. Uh, what our role is in the in the in the body in the in the church in the local church, uh, it has everything to do with you know it's our vertical standing before God, uh, and uh, and when it comes to okay, what does God call me to be now? Okay, I know I stand before God. Galatians three is all about you know we're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse twenty six, you know, for all of us uh, who are baptized into Christ, we've clothed ourselves with Christ, and then you know. There is no slave nor free. There's no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. Uh, there's one plan of salvation. Uh, we're all saved the same way. We're all fellow heirs. We all have equal standing before God, and that's all that is. Spiritually, we all have the same benefits to look forward to, and it's for the same reason, and that is because of Jesus Christ. But it's other places that clarify, okay, now that I belong to Christ and he's put me in his body, what does he call me to be and do? 
And yeah, you can't you can't neglect then what Paul says in First Timothy two or First Corinthians chapter fourteen or Ephesians chapter five in ter- or First Corinthians eleven in terms of male headship, female submission. You can't neglect all of those passages have to inform Galatians chapter three. And uh, but but yeah, you're right. People run to Galatians three twenty eight. They they isolate this expression no no male or female, and uh, you know they they plant that flag uh, as as kind of the rule of egalitarianism. But it just it just doesn't hold up uh, when you uh, you know when you call them on the fact that no 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 no. Listen, this is a great passage, but you know it has nothing to do with you know our roles in the church. This is about our standing before God spiritually. Right, and I, I love that you quoted that that you're all sons of God through faith, and, and I like to point out to people that, that when he said sons, he means sons. He doesn't mean children. You know, most, a lot of translations probably use sons and daughters or children or whatever, but I think that that, that confuses the point that he's making is that, that women and slaves and Gentiles are just as much heirs of the promises God made to Abraham Ooh. as Jewish free men are. Yes. And that yes. is a profound and radical idea, especially in the region of Galatia, where they've got these Judaizing men who are saying, you know, these these Gentile men, if you want to be part of the family of God, you need to be circumcised. And they're all caught up on circumcision. And he says, listen, women and Gentiles and slaves are just as much heirs of Abraham as any of you are, not because of circumcision, but because of faith in Jesus. And that is profound. And that needs to be the, the, the emphasis of the text because yep. it is the emphasis of the text, but when we that try to take it and right. we, we make it something else, then we really confuse we really confuse the issue. And you know, and, and I think I think even even racially, I think sometimes we even misunderstand that passage that that Paul isn't saying that there's no such thing as a Jew and there's no such thing as a Gentile. He's not saying your heritage doesn't matter or that's all erased or there's no distinction. I mean, because of course he's going to go on to talk about, you know, I'm glad I'm a Jew and, you know, and there's, and if you're a Jew, you've got this background and this history and this heritage. And if you're a Gentile, then, you know, you, you have this. And, and so those, those things aren't erased, but we are all fellow heirs of the promises God made to Abraham. We're all citizens of the kingdom of God. And that is such an awesome thing. And there are no second class citizens. And, and that there's where, you know, from the issue of male and female, we need to talk about that. No, women are not second class citizens of the kingdom of God, but just because there is a distinction in roles, uh, or just because yep. there's no distinction in in value doesn't mean that there's not a distinction in roles and and yeah. and so it just it just doesn't hold water as an argument and in fact it 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 waters down the impact of just how beautiful and awesome that passage is to to bring that in and make that a discussion about gender roles amen 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 yeah, you are so right. You are so right about the profound nature of that, and that we, where we got to keep the focus. Amen to all of that. You're you're so right. You know, uh, and, and I'll say this: what, what you were saying there, and toward the end, especially um, about helping helping see, um, you know, about roles and things like that, and and value, and and it made me, of course, think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which I think is such a huge passage to help people understand uh, 
that roles have nothing to do with value and it has uh, nothing to do, you know, with worth and uh, because it's there. You know, I love to go there when I explain, okay, but now that we're all, we're all, you know, one in Christ, we are, we are all fellow heirs. We're all Abraham's descendants through faith. And uh, we stand before God all in Christ. Uh, and then, then as you transition to, okay, now what does God call you to be as a woman of God? What does God call you to be as a, as a man of God? First Corinthians 11, uh, I think, is, is so powerful at trying to help people who are, you know, really open to, to listening uh, about the concept of, of headship. Because there, of course, you have in, in verse 3 where Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And, and so you see, even in, uh, you know, the Trinity and in, in, in God, within uh, God's own nature, uh, you have headship and submission among, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, you know, all three, fully, all the characteristics and deity that make the Father the Father belongs to the Son. And, and, and belongs to the spirit, and uh, and yet they're distinct from one another, and uh, and yet there you see uh, God is the head of Christ, and mm-hmm. so it's no insult; it's not an insult to Christ's value mm-hmm. to say God is the head yeah. of Christ. Uh, they are equal in nature, and uh, and 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 boy, if there's anything that can help people understand that uh, when we talk about roles and headship and submission, that it's not about value and worth. And uh, I think 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is so important there. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the, the scriptures, that the world sees submission and meekness as being negative things. Strong people are not meek. Strong people do not submit. That's what the world teaches. And Jesus across the board taught every single one of his followers, if you're going to follow me, then you've got to change the way you think about that. The greatest become the servants. And that's not just women. That's men. That's everybody. Every single one of us have to learn to love the idea of being meek and being submissive. We're all called to that, every single one of us, in different ways. And and if we allow submission to be treated like a dirty word in the church, then we have to dismiss the entirety of the gospel because that is Amen. at the heart of it. And you're exactly right. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Jesus was obedient to human parents. Jesus submitted to rulers and authorities. Even though he was the greatest, he became the least. He washed the feet of the disciples. And he calls us to that. And and why would we why would we shirk? any opportunity to be submissive when that's exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus. Yeah. Hey, and man, that is such a powerful point. So, so spot on, you know, we're all called to submission and we got to embrace that word, not as something dirty. And, uh, you know, and, and that reminds me by the way of another approach that a lot of, uh, you know, egalitarians take another peg that they use, other than Galatians chapter three verse twenty eight, there another one you know this is is Ephesians chapter five and verse twenty one, and uh, and they kind of read that in isolation from everything yeah. where Paul says be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, and so they say aha see there 
it is mutual submission. And so men don't submit to women, women don't submit to men. We just mutual. So we're, we're, you know, in terms of roles, we're, we're both there. And, uh, of course the very next verse, Paul says, wives be subject to your own husbands. And then of course he's going to go on husbands, love your wives as your own body. But, uh, that verse 21, uh, you know, tells us, and what it means when it says be subject to one another is uh, it, he's, Paul's reminding the church there, and he's reminding, of course, us that you know, God has ordered human society, and, and he's established certain authority roles. And, 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 and what we're to be as his people is uh, we, we accept that. And, and we are to uh, willingly submit to another person's authority uh, when our position in life calls for it. And, and so that's what God calls us to be. Um, there are going to be times when uh, my, my position in life calls me to submit to another. And, and, God, and that's what he means there, be subject to one another there. Spirit-filled believers are going to submit to each other's authority when, when the position in life uh, you know, calls for it, and, uh, uh, and 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 that's why then he says he goes on to give an example of that. Okay, wives, this is how it applies to you in this circumstance. Uh, you're spiritually equal, but God has called for male headship, and so He calls you to, as a spiritual equal, as a relational equal, to step back and accept God's call for your husband to. Uh, exercise Christ-like headship over his family and right. and the spiritual community, the church. Yeah. Uh, but mutual, you know this. Uh, but yeah, we're called to submission, and we are, we are, and so that's that's not a bad word. It's a good word, and uh, uh, and that it reminded me, like I said, of that passage there in Ephesians five twenty one. That is a great passage, uh, but but of course, is as I said, sometimes it's used as one of those pegs. Right. To, uh, support egalitarianism. And before before we we wrap up, I I've, I've got to bring up First Corinthians eleven. You brought up the first part of that passage, but the the rest of that gets brought up quite a bit to me by by well meaning people that aren't necessarily pushing an agenda, uh, but wonder. You know, Paul talks about women praying and prophesying and covering their heads uh, when they pray and prophesy, and then he'll go on in chapter fourteen to say for women not to speak, and so. So yep. a lot of people wonder, well, why is that? And a lot of people say, well, you know, there's a there's a seeming contradiction. Or I, I hear people say all the time, well, obviously there were women teaching uh, and prophesying in the church in Corinth because he he talks about that in chapter eleven. So I've got my own thoughts on it. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how you address that. Yeah. Wow. So. W- First of all, put you on that's the hot quite a passage to wrap up. <laughs> right, <laughs> we could go an hour on this. That's one. true. Uh, but but of course, let me let me see if I can summarize kind of where I'm at on that. Uh, yeah, in fact, First Corinthians chapter eleven. If there's one passage today that uh, that that people who argue for egalitarianism cling to, it is this. It, it's this reference. To women praying or prophesying, and uh, so they they do say, see, obviously women prayed and prophesied uh, when the church came together, and so this is the rule, and and so 
what they typically do then is embrace 1 Corinthians 11 as the rule, and then they'll go to places like 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, and say, okay, we've got to find out, we've got to figure out a way to fit 1 Timothy 2, 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, and on. We've got to figure out how to fit that into this rule. Uh, well, I remember several years ago when Everett Ferguson, uh, when Dr. Ferguson was doing a lecture, a series of lectures at Harding on uh, on the assembly and the different uh, issues with the assembly, they dealt with this. And I remember what he said. He he said that is a strange approach to scripture. Yeah. And and what he went on to say is to take an incidental reference to women praying and prophesying in First Corinthians 11 as the rule. And then take the verses like First Corinthians fourteen that are are rules, and say, uh, but we the the rules aren't the rules. First Corinthians eleven is the rule yeah. because that that's a really odd, odd approach to scripture. And he said, what we need to do is take the passage that actually has the rules, and that's what Paul does in First Corinthians fourteen, the latter part of it, beginning at about verse twenty three, uh, uh, is. He's establishing rules for who can speak to the gathered church. Yeah. And so I think Ferguson's right. We need to take the rules as the rules, and anything else we need to kind of look at and go, okay, how does this fit the rules? And, and of course, First Timothy 2 kind of supports what Paul says in First Corinthians 14, and so those uh, inform each other. And so, okay, how are we to take First Corinthians chapter 11? And, 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 and I think Ferguson, what he has said, and I, I totally agree with him, he's not obviously the first to say it, is when we kind of look at this, uh, we see Paul kind of handling things in a way that's not really unusual. We, we've already seen him deal with an, another topic this way in 1 Corinthians, and, and that is he has a way of dealing with one thing at a time. And, and and the other way that we see that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when the, Paul is dealing with the issue of whether you can eat, you know, go to the, uh, you know, the, the, the dining room in an, in an idol's temple and, uh, and eat there. Paul basically says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, well, we, you know, we know that there's no such thing as these idols aren't real gods. And uh, we just need to be real careful uh, of our influence and uh, – and so if we stopped at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it seems that Paul says, well, you can do it, but you've got to be real careful of your influence. And if it's going to cause anybody to stumble, you know, you don't need to do it. But it, it, so it all depends on that. Well, then he picks it up again in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he says, don't do it. Uh, he says, you know, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You know, I don't want you to become sharers in demons. Uh, and so he gets to First Corinthians chapter ten. And he says, "No, don't do it altogether." And so First Corinthians eight, he takes this moment to talk about the importance of influence in you know in in our lives, and when we're making decisions, we we've got to seriously consider the influence that it's going to have on others. But then he gets to First Corinthians chapter ten, and he deals with it uh, kind of in its finality. Well, I think he we see that same thing in First Corinthians chapter eleven. I think people are uh, – now, some people handle 1 Corinthians this way. They say, well, women are praying and prophesying, but it's not in the assembly. Well, I think that's an assumption that really can't be established. I think there are women praying and prophesying in the assembly at Corinth. And, uh, and, and so Paul's kind of dealing with one thing at a time here. First thing he does is he's establishing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 male headship. I mean, that's clear. 
that there's a difference between men and women, and that difference needs to be reflected in the life of the church. And he's going to deal with this idea of head coverings. Now, we won't get into that today. Uh, <laughs> oh, come but on, Dan. He deals with, <laughs> but he gets into that, and, and so he deals with that. And uh, then when he gets over into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he gets back to the point and says, okay, women, you're in, when the whole church comes together, you are to remain silent. You're not to speak at all. Uh, and so, uh, and by the way, uh, that's why I think that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, no women are praying and prophesying in Corinth. There's a lot of things happening in Corinth that are messed up yeah. that, he's, that he has to deal not with. Not really the model church we want to model. Yeah, it's not really the model church. Yeah. You know, lots of things going on. And, and so I know that there's women speaking in church because not just because of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know it from 1 Corinthians 14 because he deals with three groups. He gives rules for three groups when he talks about who can speak to the gathered church, and those three groups are tongue speakers, and they are, uh, are uh, prophets, and then women. And so he takes each of those, and he, and he identifies them, and he gives the rule, and then he, and he uh, alludes to or states the reason for the rule. And so, you know, I like to ask people when we're talking about it, I say, now, why does he— why does he give this rule for tongue speakers in the church at Corinth? Does, is he just sitting around and thinking, hmm, what can I write to the church at Corinth? Hmm, I think I'll talk about who can speak in the gathered church. And the answer is no. Everybody answers the question, well, he tells this to tongue speakers because there's a problem with tongue speakers there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a bunch of people are talking at once. Some are speaking in tongues, and there's no one to interpret. There's a problem with that. That's why Paul gives the rule there. It, it's germane to that particular setting. And, and then, well, why does he talk to, uh, you know, give this rule for prophets? Well, because things are out of control there uh, in Corinth. You know, prophets are all speaking at once. And, and, uh, and then why does he give the, the rule to the women that he does and call the women to be silent in the church, as in all the churches of the saints? Well, I, the reason is because women are speaking there, and they don't need to be speaking there. And, uh, and so he tells them that there's a time and place uh, even to answer their questions, uh, you know, let them ask their husbands at home. And I think what he means by that, he just kind of assumes that most women are married, and he's saying there's a time and a place to deal with things like that, and it's not in the, 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 uh, the, the gathering, the public gathering of the church. And, uh, and so, yeah, there's women speaking uh, at Corinth, and, uh, and that's why Paul deals with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so... I think you see the model that he kind of deals with one thing at a time in 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, again, when he talks about eating in an idol's temple. And I think you see that same model. I think that's the best explanation. Uh, but the rule's clear. The rule yeah. is, is, I think, crystal clear in 1 Corinthians 14, and I think 1 Timothy 2 supports that. Uh, and so we then take 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and go, okay, what's up with this? Uh, well, clearly, again, for, he's establishing male headship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it deals with the head covering issue. And then he gets to first, chapter 14, and he says women keep silent. And, and then he brings up that it's – but they are to be – they are to subject themselves to be in submission. And so it's all connected with the whole principle that he established in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 of the principle of male headship and female submission. Yeah. And so it's a concrete – just one concrete, visible way – that uh, we we are to reflect in the kingdom 
the principle of, of male headship and submission. Yeah. Man, I appreciate it, brother. That's some good stuff right there. Well, listen, man, I appreciate the opportunity. I have thoroughly enjoyed our chat and I appreciate you and the work you do. And likewise, and, and man, your love for the text. Hey, let me leave you with one thing. And, uh, uh, that, back to the book that uh, Schreiner and Kirstenberger edited on women in the church. There is a quote in there that Tom Schreiner, uh, uh, that is so awesome. I, I, I use this a lot, and I, when, when we talk about it, when I talk about this issue with, with folks, and uh, I, I don't know, uh, it's in both editions, but... Uh, he's he's writing a chapter on a dialogue with scholarship, and, and here's what he says, and it's kind of lengthy, but, but I want to read it to you because I think it really sums up where I want to be. I just respect Schreiner so much for, for what he says here. He says, when I first began studying this issue in earnest, that is the issue of women's roles, he said, I wanted to believe that Scripture places no limitations on women in ministry and that every ministry position is open to them. And I agree with Schreiner. I mean, if I get my vote, I want that. Yeah. Uh, and so he says, that's what I wanted. And he said, as a student, I read many articles on the question, hoping that I could be convinced exegetically that all ministry offices should be opened to women. And then he says, upon reading the articles, though, I remained unconvinced intellectually and exegetically that the new interpretations of the controversial passages were plausible. Indeed, he said, reading the egalitarian interpretations persuaded me that the complementarian view, and that's the view that you and I hold, of course, it persuaded me that the complementarian view was true, since the former involved unlikely interpretations of the so-called problem passages. And, and, okay, forget all that. That kind of sets it up. Here's what I love, the statement that he loved. He says, I remember saying to a friend who is a New Testament scholar, I would like to believe the position you hold, but it seems as if you have to leap over the evidence of the text to espouse such a position. And then Schreiner said that his friend replied, and this is a quote, Tom, you're right. Take that leap. Take that leap. And then Schreiner said, bless his heart, leaping over the evidence is precisely what I am unwilling to do. Thanks so much for listening to the Crosstalk Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you have an idea for a future episode, send me an email, wes at radicallychristian.com. As always, I love you, God loves you, and I hope you have a wonderful day.